Around six years ago, we identified a number of vision statements that summarise some of the key things that we long to be as a local church before the Lord. And uh, as elders, we felt that now was a good time to remind ourselves of some of those key features, particularly in the light of all that has happened in these last couple of years. And uh, the first statement says that as a local church, we long to be God-glorifying, that our purpose is to glorify the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our worship, work, and witness. Now, friends, there is really so much on my heart to share with you over these next few weeks, God willing. But this morning, I want really to set the context to introduce what we're going to be looking at. And really, over the years, God has been so good to us as a local church. And yet, there are many challenges ahead of us as we seek to be faithful in the day and age in which the Lord has called us. And we need to understand what are the key biblical principles that underpin our vision, our direction, the decisions that we'll need to take, always bringing things back and examining what we do according to the Scriptures. This is Christ's church. It is not ours. And he is the head of this church. And our purpose must always be to glorify God and to do the work that he has given us to do in his way and for his glory. But in an ever-shifting world, what are we about? What do we stand for? Where does that come from? What sets us apart? What is it that directs what we do? What is our vision? Well, to set the context, the landscape of Christianity today is perhaps more cluttered and complicated than ever before. There are so many different influences, and though there are encouragements, there is much error, there is much weak theology and casual Christian conduct and commitment, and really there's been an ongoing drift amongst so many where certain theological convictions have been set aside and biblical principles have been cast aside, often for pragmatism. In other words, if it works... Regardless of what the scriptures say, let's do it. And often churches have been drawn into looking to worldly means and marketing principles, etc., to try and secure success. And many churches want to be bigger and better, but even if they're not better, then bigger will do. And when you start to scratch below the surface, there's been an increasing apathy and what one commentator calls nominal evangelicalism. There's a shallowness there. And there's been a real drop and crumbling in a desire for the truth of God, and that's amongst those even who profess faith. As one says, we live in a society that worships at the shrine of size. In the world's eyes, if something is not big, then it does not deserve our attention. And we see that throughout. I mean, we see it in the way in which the the society is set up and different things. And it's not easy then to be upbeat about a church where it might just be a few when you set it within that cultural bias. But as he says, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And then there's been that massive deep impact which we're still feeling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And churches have been shaken And underlying issues have suddenly been exposed, and sadly, they've often caused terrible damage in churches. Many people have stopped attending church. 
And one survey produced recently concluded that as many as one-third of churchgoers have stopped gathering for whatever reason since COVID. And the time is long gone when we could assume that dedicated believers in Jesus Christ understood why they should bother with the local church. The number who identify as Christians is far larger than the number who are committed in local bodies of the Lord's people. And even then, the majority of the serving and giving in local churches tends to be done by only a few. It's not that COVID-19 suddenly convinced Christians that they didn't need church. It's just it accelerated really what was already there. And sudden lockdowns caught all of us by surprise in their nature and uncertain duration, and that break for some has now become permanent. And the world did not mourn the absence of the gathered church, really wasn't worried about it. Even before COVID, the church was generally viewed, I and mean, I'm not just talking about us, by the way, but the church in general was already viewed as odd by the vast majority of people outside. They've got no idea about what church is anyway. And the concerning thing was that really neither did many professed believers don't really understand what church actually is. And then you've got online access to so many influences and churches and preachers and media, and it's had a massive impact in some respect for good, but not always. And the problem is, when in-person gatherings go, bonds of affection are weakened. And plus, often the, the small local church, with all of its inadequacies, technological limitations, and average preaching, lose its appeal when compared to the big, super-slick churches with stunning presentation and incredible music and world-renowned preachers, which can all be watched from the comfort of your front room much greater ease and comfort. And so what hope for a, a small church in such strange and difficult days? And especially when life in a local little family of the Lord's people can be tough. You know, even those who, who love the local church, who love this local church, know frustrations and have to learn to forgive and to forbear with our brothers and sisters. And God doesn't put us in churches because they've got it totally together or they are as we just want them to be or as a bit of encouragement. No, it is his purpose to put us in a spiritual family of misfits, of outcasts, but united together in the Lord Jesus. Sinners saved by his grace. And why? To display his glory to the world around us. And the local church, even a small one like ours, is central to the sovereign plan and purpose of God. And a gathered church like this is more than meets the eye. And what the world writes off, and what the world ridicules, is in fact the apple of God's eye. Part of the body for which Jesus gave himself. And it's through fellowships like this and people that at times we may struggle with that God wants to show the triumph of his grace and the wonder of his love. Love which is able to overcome the forces which are ripping apart the broken world around us. And not only that, but it is the local church coming together where Jesus says that he is present in a unique way where heaven touches earth. Little outposts of the kingdom of God 
on earth. And I want to encourage you this morning that God uses the unlikely. You know, I read an account recently which reminded me of this. There was a, a gospel church that had closed its doors. And one man of faith felt under God compelled that he should seek to open it again. And so on an Easter Sunday a few years ago, the church had a, a service to try and get things going. And many from other churches came to encourage. And many well wishes were there. And the man preached. And it was a good day. But the following Sunday, reality kicked in. And he went to the building and he opened it up and he was the only one there. And so what should he do? He was the only one. Well, he prayed and he decided that whether or not there was a congregation, he was going to have a service. And so on his own, he sang and he read the scriptures and he prayed and he preached the message that God had laid on his heart. And the service came to an end and he put on his coat and he began locking up. And just then... An African lady came up to him and said, what have you been doing? And the man said, well, I've been praising God. And he said, but, but you were on your own, she said to him. And he said, yes, I know. And she said, well, if you've got a service next week, I'll come along. And so the lady was fairly new to the UK. She'd seen the empty building near her home, and she had been praying that God would do something. And so over the next few months, first one and then others began to come along and the church now has a solid membership, has a good number on a Sunday and has its own pastor again. God can use the unlikely. And often small churches can be sneered at by the world, but also, if we're honest, they can feel belittled and pitied and seen as poor relations by other Christians who may be doing their own thing or part of bigger causes. And being part of a smaller church, as I said, it's not always easy, but our attitude is so important. We can either look at the smallness and see it as a reason to be discouraged and downhearted, as some do, always looking at the drawbacks and what we can't do, or we can see that smallness as an opportunity for God to use it for his glory. It's a matter of perspective and attitude before the Lord. And we have to remember that God's thoughts, his ways are not ours. He does not work in the way that we expect or the world expects. And the Bible tells us that our God is a God who is able to use the lowly, who uses the despised, who uses the weak things so that all the glory may go to him. So if people outside write us off like that, we need to be remember that we might just be in the place where God can use us to bring most glory to his name. And I know that some people want to write us off. But our God is the God who derives most glory from situations that other people have written off. One puts it like this, the depth of the darkness makes the starlight even more wonderful. The impossibility of a set of circumstances can be used to show his splendor. The valley of dry bones can become a mighty army. Most significantly, though Jesus was dead and buried, God is the God who loves to raise the dead to life. He is the God who brings the light of Easter morning out of the midnight of Good Friday. God uses churches that others have written off. And so there is hope, and we should be hopeful. 
But also we should be aware of the challenges that come with being in a fellowship that is smaller. And also you need to understand that smallness is not always the problem in itself. Almost every church starts small. Sometimes it can be most effective in that state. Again, I was reading about communist China where millions upon millions have trusted the Lord Jesus and have become Christians. And many meet in very small fellowships of believers. One example that I read really struck me. It was given how in the, the 1990s, now you have to forgive my pronunciation of these people groups, but I'll do my best. The Jinghong and Mengla of the Yunnan province reached out to the Jino people in the jungles and mountains of that area. And as a result, 300 people within that Gino people group have become Christians. Now, those 300 Gino Christians have now planted 31 churches. It is an amazing thing. But if you work that out, 300 into 31 churches, they're all small works. But God has done this in their midst, and the gospel mission goes on. And with those churches, they are serving for the glory of God because evidence of the grace of God doesn't depend on numbers. And problems in churches, whatever size, even though they may present themselves in different ways, they are always spiritual. The local church is central to God's plan for the worship of his name and the proclamation of the gospel. And so we know that the enemy will do all that he can to destroy and to cause problems for faithful churches, problems which can drain the church of life and usefulness. And so I want just to mention some of the ways that the enemy can hinder a local church from glorifying God. And the first way is this, by causing it to drift away from God's word. It is through hearing the truth concerning Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that sinners come to faith and by grace are saved. And again, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you need to be saved. And so turn from your sins, trust in Christ. That's a gospel message. Know what it is to be forgiven and to be right with God. But when we have been brought to salvation and we desire to live to the glory of God and follow his word, it is through his word that we know more of him, that we worship him, that we can live for him and obey him. And so the word has to be central in our lives as individuals and as a church. It is the authority, it is the foundation. But often there's a disconnect between believing in the authority of the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible and how it is then put to practice in churches. Biblical principles are often not worked through in terms of what God expects of his church. And although many Christians would defend the Bible and say it's the inspired word of God, if they're honest, there's a doubt in them that its message and means are adequate enough to reach and engage and sustain and build up today. There's been a collapse of belief that the Bible is able to speak and to meet the needs of life now. And so the enemy attacks that. He attacks the foundation of the word. He does it through false teaching, that's true, but also in a more subtle way by increasing the view that actually the truth doesn't matter so much. 
that doctrine doesn't matter so much. And so many churches have slowly come away from a robust doctrinal position to try and remove obstacles. But in doing so, that drift has taken them away from the truth of God. And remember, throughout the New Testament, churches are called to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And we must do so lovingly and graciously, but we must do it. As one explains, it is better to be small and despised by the world than to dishonor Christ by abandoning the word of God. And we need to ask ourselves, are we drifting from the word? Do we doubt its relevance and its power today? We need to ask ourselves that. Satan will attack in regards to the word of God. He will also attack by stirring up division. Splits and divisions in churches undermine the credibility of the gospel in a particular place. Unity is meant to be a mark of the body of the Lord's people, united in Christ. And that unity is to be protected, it is to be valued as a blessing of the Lord and a source of strength and encouragement for one another as we come alongside one another as a family of believers together. And friends, when love abounds amongst the Lord's people, it is a mark of the presence of God, because God is love. It is so important that throughout the New Testament, churches are called to pursue unity, to strive to keep unity, called to unity within the body on the found, firm foundation of the word. Now, of course, unity cannot be kept if a fundamental truth of the gospel is at stake or if serious sin needs to be dealt with. But friends, often it's not those things which threaten to divide believers. And it's not surprising that the enemy does all he can to cause division. He does it by stirring up conflict between brethren, different personalities, different ages, different family groups. He provokes people to push themselves and what they want and their agendas and to open up rifts. And he's able to use so many issues to cause friction and division so that love is gone. And these tensions can easily blow apart a small work, and that's very serious. And those who do that, those who engage in that, are accountable not only to the church that they harm, but to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. You know, I think if certain people really understood that, they would not act in the way that they do. If they realized that they were accountable to Jesus Christ for their actions, they would not do the things that they do. And when these things arise, such things can only be overcome through true Christ-like humility and patience and prayer and love and wisdom and were necessary repentance. And so we have to ask ourselves, are there rifts that need to be healed? Things that need to be dealt with. Satan stirs division. Also, Satan seeks to hinder and harm gospel churches by encouraging them to tolerate sin. You know, we must do what we can to seek the purity and the holiness of the church of Christ. And there are times when those in the family of God, members of the body, fall into sin and they will not repent. And from hearts of love, it has to be dealt with. 
As one explains, the toleration of sin among the people of God is always the devil's work. It is a sure way to cause God to withdraw his blessing from a church. Maybe not immediately as he gives the church time to sort things out, but allowing sin to go unchecked always damages and can destroy churches. And the church cannot be blackmailed or held to ransom by people threatening to withdraw. It cannot turn a blind eye to obvious sin just to keep the peace because this is Christ's work. It is not ours. And Satan seeks to hinder the work by encouraging the people of God to tolerate sin. Also, Satan seeks to hinder the local church by promoting discouragement. Do you know, Satan is the master of discouraging churches. He loves to promote a defeated attitude, particularly in small churches. And he can do it through other Christians who throw shade, as it were, at the church from outside. He loves to add to a negative reputation that a church may have. And where this is fueled by false rumors, well, we can only leave that in the Lord's hands. But often the discouragement comes from within. And he can use believers to sow discord, to sow discouragement among the Lord's people. And so I need to ask the question, have we contributed to a spirit of discouragement and pessimism? Because a discouraged church, however small or large, can easily end up ceasing to be. That's why we're called to love one another, to encourage one another, and to build one another up. Satan loves to promote discouragement. And also Satan hinders local churches by getting people to focus on the wrong thing. You know, we have to be clear about what we are together as a family of the Lord's people. You know, as believers, we are called out of the world to worship God, to love and build up one another in Christ as a family together, and to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. Now, can members of the family really worship and serve well alongside each other if they've fallen out with each other? Where bitterness exists. Is that an environment where babes in the faith can be birthed by the sovereign grace of God? And Satan is also good at convincing small churches of what they cannot do, and particularly in neglecting to reach out with the gospel. We will not be able to evangelize, dear friends, when we're in glory. This is a responsibility and a privilege that we have now. Are we committed to it? Because Satan wants to hinder the outreach of local churches by telling them what they cannot do and gets people to focus on the wrong thing. So there are many hindrances, many challenges. We have an enemy who is set against us. So how do we press on? Where's the encouragement? When we're so small, when the enemy is doing all that he can to ruin us, when we feel downcast, where do we look then? Friend, what we need and what we long for is a fresh vision of our great and glorious God. The God who is revealed in Scripture, the God who is sovereign, the God who is holy. And that God would be given his rightful place and that everything that we do would be to his glory and directed by him. And we will only submit to that 
We will only submit to him when we have encountered him in his sovereign majesty. And that's why Isaiah 6 is such a key passage. If you just look to that and then we'll finish as we introduce this passage and God willing, look at it more next week. Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this amazing vision. He's confronted with this vision in which God is revealed in his glory and his majesty, in his holiness, in his grace, and it transforms his entire life and ministry. God brought a man to a vision of his majesty so much that affected his life, he was never the same again. And Isaiah needed it. And you say, well, why? Well, when God called Isaiah to be his servant, God told him that he would fail in the eyes of the world. Can you imagine that? God told him that he would fail. He told him that Israel wouldn't listen to him he told him that they would not repent. He told him that judgment was going to come and only a stump would be left, as it were. It was incredibly hard calling. And so how did God encourage his servant to undertake that when all seemed to be against, when it seemed to be so discouraging? Well, God gives him a glimpse of the staggering glory of who Isaiah would be serving. Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Interestingly, Isaiah had known Uzziah well. He'd seen Uzziah reign, an earthly king on his earthly throne. But then Uzziah died, and Isaiah is given to see the true eternal king on the eternal throne. It reminds us that earthly leaders come and go, but God was, he is, and he ever shall be. God never had a beginning, nor does he have any end. He depends on nothing for his existence. And so the prophet is given a glimpse into heaven, and everything that he is given to see conveys a sense of God's transcendence and his wonder and his vastness. Heaven is the place where God is most highly exalted, and Isaiah is given to see something of that. You know, even in the descriptions, you look there as you read through the end of verse 1, God's robe fills the temple. It emphasizes that God is a God of splendor without compare. God is surrounded by seraphim, literally these, these burning ones. And despite their own glory, they avert their gaze, they cover their feet to shield themselves from the greater burning glory of God. Not even they can look upon the Lord or feel worthy enough to even leave their feet exposed in his presence. And even though they're radiant and brilliant themselves, they hide in holy fear and reverence from the splendor of this holy God. Such is his glory. And these amazing beings, they are totally taking up with, with worshipping the holy God, their maker, in the beauty of holiness. And such is the worship, their voices thunder, and the doorposts of the heavenly temple shake. Can you imagine? And to add to that sense of transcendence, the whole place is filled with smoke and covers this glory and mystery. And then it speaks about the holiness of God. You see that as it goes on, verse 3. The holiness of God. God's holiness, the perfection of his divine nature. His glory is the display of that holiness. 
and his being and his character undetermined by anything outside of himself. He is holy. Think of 1 Samuel 2, 2. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Hosea 11:9. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. You know, you read elsewhere and the end language runs out and we can only bow before him in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The greatness of our God. And you know, even seeing those things and hearing those things, why do we press on? Because God, the Holy One, has called us to his service. And it is for his glory. And what the results are, what other people think about us, that's not the concern. He is our concern. The great God. And friends, we will only be freed from the fear of man when we know the fear of God. And when our heart is filled with the, the greatness of God and serving God, everything else is put into a right perspective. And this vision of God's holiness changed Isaiah's life. But there's another element too. And it's this, that God is on the throne. You know, what is perhaps most significant is what God is doing. God is seated on his kingly throne. You know, no vision of heaven ever caught a glimpse, uh, a glimpse of God doing anything sort of trivial. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. He sits on the throne and all is well. He is reigning from the place of supreme authority over heaven and earth. The throne is his right to rule the world. We don't give God authority over our lives. He has it whether you like it or not. Few things are more humbling, few things give us that sense of raw majesty than the truth that God is totally sovereign and he has authority. And as a further demonstration of his authority, the throne itself is exalted, it is high and lifted up, it is higher than all others. And that underlines God's superior, matchless power to exercise his authority. None can stop him. None can prevent his purposes. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. Daniel 4, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so Isaiah is faced with this vision of the sovereignty of God, God on the throne, God in the heaven, the God who rules. And from his throne, he issues his royal decrees, including his sovereign decrees of election. He executes his plan of salvation, drawing sinners to himself by stunning grace. This amazing vision that God is on the throne. And you know, that vision is then repeated in Revelation. The Apostle John, he is given the privilege of seeing the throne room of God. He sees the same thing as Isaiah had seen those hundreds of years earlier. He saw the Lord exalted on his heavenly throne. He heard the living creatures around the throne continuously saying in Revelation 4, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
But there's a detail revealed in John's vision, and that is this, that the Lord who reigns is Jesus Christ. He is our King. Revelation 5, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. Not only is Christ at the center of the throne, the throne is at the center of heaven, encircled by men and angels who offer continual praise. That's the glory we're headed for. And 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This vision of God, the high and lofty one seated upon a throne, Isaiah says, facing this difficult ministry, he is overcome because he says, My eyes have seen the King. Isaiah saw the king who is on the throne forever, whose plans forever stand. And though days may be difficult, though there is much to cause us concern, all is in his hands. And the present darkness only serves to make the Lord and his work more glorious when he comes in power to awaken and bless or where he comes again in great glory to draw this present evil age to its end. And it's only as we fix our eyes on him that we will be encouraged to go on, large or small, and to do all for his glory. And as individuals and as a church, we need to be brought through the word of God back into that throne room to see again the greatness of our God, to realize that he is ruling and that he is reigning, that this is his work and we are his servants. And so all that we are, all that we seek to be, all that we seek to do has to begin with him, the great God of heaven. And friends, that's the emphasis that this church has sought to protect and uphold throughout its 200 years or so of existence. A local church to the glory of God. And we pray that that will continue to be led by his hand and directed by his word and sustained by his grace to faithfully proclaim his gospel and to do all to his glory. What we need is a greater vision of our God and to stop focusing on all the troubles around us and to look to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. He can use us, dear friends. He can use us in our smallness with all of our inadequacy and he can use us because then he will get the glory. Amen.